Last weekend, we celebrated the highest point on the Christian calendar. We celebrated Good Friday and Easter. We were reminded of Jesus' death, his agonizing, horrific death. We were reminded that he bore the sins of the entire human race on his shoulders. In, and he paid for it. Everything that you've ever thought or done, he paid for it. It's gone. And then we celebrated Easter Sunday, an amazing demonstration of his power, his victory over sin and death and everything that separates us from God. Jesus has conquered death. Death isn't an enemy we need to fear anymore. Jesus has done it if we put our faith in him. But today, we are looking at the aftermath of Easter. And in a way, we are living in the aftermath, the afterglow of Easter. And I want you to just bear with me and use your imagination for a bit. Forget about 2,000 years of church history. Forget about all of that. You know the story, basically. But imagine what those disciples, those first disciples were feeling on the first Easter Saturday. Just think of it. What were they feeling? The, the men hadn't been there for his crucifixion. They were too frightened, they were hiding. The women were there, but only because they wouldn't be arrested. They were grieving. They were shocked. They were frightened. They were scared for their lives. They were grieving, disorientated, lost. Jesus was gone. They put all their hopes in him, and now he was gone. For three years, they'd been traveling around and following Jesus, a leader who could deal with anything. You know, he could cure incurable diseases, and he could open the eyes of the blind. He could cast out demons, and he could raise the dead. He could calm storms, just with a word, peace, be still. And he could feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. And he could confound his religious critics. He could answer any tricky question that anybody asked him. Wouldn't you like to be like that? So they were safe under the protection of Jesus. They could be bold because Jesus was there, but now he was gone. And he submitted weakly to an unjust trial. He went willingly to a shameful death. Why did he do that? They were puzzled. And they were left alone and fearful, expecting arrest, a knock on the door at any moment, expecting that they too would be put on trial and killed. 
How would you be feeling? Then imagine what they felt on that first Easter Sunday. There were these reports coming in, a flood of astonishing information. The woman who'd gone to anoint his body came back saying the tomb was empty. Some of them said that they'd seen an angel who said he'd risen. And Mary Magdalene came back and said that she'd met him and he talked to her. And Peter and John went down to the tomb and said, yeah, yeah, it's empty. This is some grave clothes which look as if the body's vaporized out of them. And then what, imagine what they felt like over the next 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus kept appearing and then he would disappear, like go through a wall or through a locked door. So he was alive, but he wasn't like he used to be. He wasn't the same, he was different. And then Jesus was explaining things to them and teaching and showing his wounds, helping them to understand a little bit of what, it, what was going on. But it was exciting but confusing. It was joyful but uncertain. It's like, okay. He explained that all of this was prophesied. It was all part of God's plan. It was all written in the Old Testament. And he helped them understand the Old Testament. I mean, I wish I'd been there, actually, to, ex to hear Jesus expounding all the Old Testament prophecies. I mean, there's about 300 of them. But anyway, there's, you know, he said, actually, all the clues were there. This is what had to happen. But still, what were they meant to do now? Before, they were just tagging along and learning stuff. It was great. But who were they meant to follow now? Who was going to be the leader? Who was going to be the one answering the tricky questions? And how were they meant to survive against this hostile Sanhedrin with the hard-faced Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death? How were they meant to survive? They could get arrested. They could get thrown out of the synagogue. They could get persecuted. And then as Jesus began to patiently explain all this, they began to understand. Firstly, they understood about Jesus' mission was only focused on the Jewish nation, the people of God. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His mission would have been to challenge the religious people to be more loving, more kind, more giving. And his mission was to call sinners, the outcasts, the people that the religious leaders spurned, to call them to repentance and to realize they could be forgiven. They could start a new life. And when Jesus sent them out, what he'd been doing, he'd been training them and multiplying his mission to the people of Israel. Jesus said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. 
but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his passion. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And they'd been given authority to do this. As he explained, they started to understand his crucifixion, that Jesus' mission was ultimately to die for the sins of the entire human race, to die as the perfect sacrificial lamb, to make the forgiveness of sins possible, and to reconcile repentant sinners to God. People who had no hope from the religious people, actually they could be forgiven. And then they began to understand what they were meant to do. At the end of 40 days, shortly before his ascension, Jesus gave them their mission. Their mission was no longer only to the Jewish nation, the people of God, but instead to the whole world, to all nations. They would finally fulfill Israel's calling to be a light to the Gentiles. That was why God had caused, called Israel in the first place. Their purpose was to be a light, a holy nation, reaching out to the people around about them. But instead, they had gone inward looking. They concentrated on pure worship, keeping rules, and excluded the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was turned into a cattle market. No wonder Jesus was angry when he went to the temple. Their witness would create a new people for God, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When he sent them out before he'd given them authority, authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness, that was their authority. But now he would give them power, power for mission. And that's what we have. Because of what Jesus did and because of what he said, if we are truly his disciples, we have authority and we have power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. It's almost inevitable. It's like, wow, the Holy Spirit fills us with joy. And what can we do but tell people? You know, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and that's still our mission. Our mission is to be full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit, and it should bubble over into witness to tell people, because it's good news. Yeah? 
It's good news. And so it's continued through our 2,000 years of church history. And in spite of all their flaws and their failings, in spite of all the ups and downs, the people of God have continued to spread the message about Jesus. From those first few witnesses to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the message has now reached every corner of the globe. And approximately one-third of the world's population now acknowledges Jesus is Lord. That was a subversive cry of the early church. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. But it does raise some questions for us. Do we exercise our power and our authority? Do we proclaim the kingdom of God, the Lordship of Jesus? Do we heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers when we come across them, and cast out demons? Is that what we're up to? Well, occasionally. Um, do we make disciples of all nations? Or even all of East Malty? which would be a, a decent uh, aim. And if not, what do we do? What are we doing? Have you ever wondered what Jesus thinks of his church now? Probably a mixture of pride and joy and sorrow and anger, which is pretty much the way that he looked at the people of God in his day, the religious people. The priest and the Levite, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The priest of the Levite who, and Levite who were so holy and busy about their stuff that they walked past and didn't help the man. Then there were the pious Pharisees and other people who were so focused on keeping the Sabbath day holy that they said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus was constantly in conflict with them. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and he kept all the rules but he wouldn't give up his wealth. But then there was a poor widow who threw in her last few coins into the, into the temple treasury. And Jesus was pleased with her. And there were people Jesus was pleased with. I think if he looked at the church today, and he probably does, I think he would be most happy with the persecuted church in places like China or Iran or other countries in the Middle East, churches have to meet in secret, in hiding, for fear of arrest, just like those first disciples. I think we'd be pleased with the churches of, whom, of the poor in places like Africa or Asia or Latin America, Churches that are meeting under a tree or in a shack or a run-down building, but joyful, full of joy. I think he would be least happy with a church in the West, the affluent church, the compromising church, the church that was focused on all sorts of trendy issues apart from serving him. 
I've been in some churches. There were churches who were focused on robes and choirs and ancient buildings. There are churches who are focused on cool music, spiritual gifts, and exciting worship. And there are also and all sorts of other churches. But I mean, the main problem is that instead of serving others and telling others, we get distracted. We start focusing on other stuff. Instead of being Jesus' witnesses to a lost world, we get into all sorts of disputes and arguments with each other. That's not right. You know, many churches today in England have lost their first love, have lost their trust in the Bible, have lost their trust in God. I've been in churches like that where actually people doubt the Bible. They even doubt in God. So, how do you think we are doing as a church? I mean, I, I can speak as a relative newcomer, so I've got a little bit of perspective. I think, actually, we are a warm and welcoming church, okay? I think the cafe and the soft play are a great bonus. It's a wonderful way of serving the community, reaching out to people, but are we using every opportunity? We've got lots of groups and activities, and that's good. You know, and we have great opportunities for mission. We do Alpha. That's a real plus. I think it's a good sign. It's like when we talk to people about going to their local church, we say, do they do Alpha? It's a sign of a good church. We have good news. The entire morning Alpha group from last term We've not actually finished Alpha, they've got a couple of sessions still to go, but they decided at our last session to all be baptized as a group this term, which is great. That's great. But we didn't run the evening Alpha last term because we only had one guest. So that's not so great. And in a way, when I look at this church, I think we could do better. We could support Alpha a bit better. We could be volunteering to help in different ways. We could cook meals. We have some people who've been very sacrificial about cooking meals for Alpha, which is great. But then there's all the load on, on a few people. If we spread it out, we can carry a heavy load. So actually, all get involved. Make a meal. Invite people to come to Alpha. And, and, and you know, invite family, friends, colleagues. Come to Alpha. Learn more about Jesus. And that's a challenge I want to lay on all of us today. Our witness is meant to be with authority and with power. So are you, as you think about it, being a witness to Jesus in the power of the Spirit? Not only on Sunday, but all the time. So filled with joy that you don't care what people think. 
Invite people. Do you tell others? Do you share the good news? Do you share the good news with your family? Some of them may be difficult, but I mean, share it with your family, with your colleagues, when you're at work. Don't be like the guy who is near the water fountain and hummed and hard about telling people who've gone to the Alpha Holy Spirit weekend. Um, share, you know. It's in your leisure time. Do you tell your friends? I'm sure we all have lots of friends. So for us, a new term lies ahead. It's full of potential, full of plans. Work plans, family plans, holiday plans. For the first disciples and for many Christians around the world, the days ahead were full of uncertainty, opposition, danger, death. Almost all the first 12 apostles died for their faith. The only one who, who died a natural death, as far as we know, was John. But they went out faithfully telling others about Jesus. You know, for me personally, it's been a difficult few years. And for all of us, I think, our normal life has been disrupted the last few years. There was COVID when we couldn't really meet together. There's uh, global warming, which made the weather very unpredictable. There's a war in Ukraine. There's the COVID crisis, you know, the cost of living crisis. All of these things have shaken our world up a bit, our settled, predictable sort of world. And for me personally, the last year was very unsettling because in January, my wife Linda was diagnosed with vascular dementia. Then in October, I went into hospital with a mini, what was diagnosed as a mini stroke. A week later, our eldest son Robbie went into hospital. He died within a week. Um, then two days before Robbie's memorial service, Linda broke her arm and she still can't move it properly. And then two days before Christmas, my mom died. And we had to arrange a memorial service for Robbie at high speed and uh, one for, uh, a memorial service for, for, my, um, for my mother. And all of this just made me reassess life. It was a time of shaking to reassess my own future and to ask questions. And really the basic question is, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I don't know how much time I've got. Time doesn't seem endless anymore, my life. Have I still got a purpose and a calling? Has God still got something for me to do? What does God want me to do with the time I've got left? But actually, you know, when you think of it, none of us know how much time we've got left. None of us know the future. So I'm going to leave you with this question. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? And in fact, what does God want you to do with the rest of your life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for your precious life. 
which you gave for us that first Easter, that paid for our sins, that was triumphant over death. Lord, I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your power and authority, with your joy, that we can go out and be your witnesses to the world, wherever we are, even if it's embarrassing, even if it's tough. Help us to be good witnesses because you have done so much for us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.